was a snippet of the last protest action that took place as part of the nine weeks of Art in Action, a protest series spearheaded by Decolonize This Place and in opposition to Whitney Museum Vice Chair Warren Canders, who is the owner of Safariland, an ominous-sounding company that manufactures tear gas and other items used by police and military forces around the world. The recording was taken in the lobby of the Whitney Museum in New York on May 18th of this year. That was when a coalition of art and activist groups joined forces to make their voices heard. I'm Hrag Vartanyan, and this is the Art Movement's podcast from Hyperallergic. This episode, we have three other hyperallergic staff members, Jasmine Weber, our associate news editor, Hakeem Bashara, our staff writer, as well as Seth Rodney, our editor, as well as critic. So hi, everyone. Hello. Hey. Hi. How you doing? This week, we're talking about the Whitney Biennial, which just ended roughly about a week ago. And as people know, we've been very involved in reporting on it and talking about it. And I have to say, I really do feel like the Whitney Biennial becomes a type of barometer of the U.S. art scene. And not just in the art they're showing, but in the politics, in the discussions, in the scrutiny, in all these sort of aspects. I think it captures those levels of the art community in such a compact way, honestly. But before we get into that, Jasmine, you were the first to report on this. Your article is what encouraged over 100 staff members of the Whitney Museum to sign a letter about Warren Canders, their former vice chair that was one of the owners of Safariland, which was a munitions manufacturer and different kind of equipment for police departments, including tear gas, and we discovered later bullets and other things. You have the stage, Jasmine. What do people need to know about the arc of this story and how you'd been covering it and what you discovered along the way? Yeah, so I think what you say about the Whitney Biennial being a barometer for the U.S. art scene in terms of artwork and also politics is really relevant when it comes to the 2019 Biennial because the information about Warren Canders was public and has been for a very long time. In 2015, Jillian Steinhauer reported for Hyperallergic about the connection between Warren Canders' Safariland, Tear Gas, and the Whitney. It didn't get much traction. I think what's really interesting is that in 2019, the weekend after Thanksgiving in the U.S., there were enormous reports by publications like the New York Times about an altercation at the U.S.-Mexico border where U.S. officers were launching tear gas at migrants trying to enter the United States. 
This story was picked up and a number of journalists online identified these canisters as Safari Land canisters. Yeah, I should also mention that one photo that everyone saw of the mother with the two children with the tear gas near the wall. I mean, that's become iconic of the whole controversy. Yeah, it's become a really iconic image of the border crisis and of the current administration's attitude towards immigrants and refugees. Hyperallergic has been reporting on Candor's for a number of years, and this cross-pollination of politics and art and the Whitney Biennial created this perfect storm for people to latch onto the story and to become interested. We were tipped by Aaron Cantu, who works at the Santa Fe Reporter, who brought that connection to Warren Candor's that we had reported on in 2015 back to the surface. And from there, it was really a whirlwind of art publications picking up on the story. The hundred staffers at the Whitney Museum putting themselves on the line with the administration to say that they are not comfortable working at a museum that privileges the safety and the money of a weapons manufacturer over the lives of their family and friends. Isn't it crazy? I mean, how did we get here, Seth? (laughs) What are your thoughts on this? Well, the first thing I would say is that in terms of being a barometer of the art scene, I think the Whitney is more than just a barometer of the politics and discussions that we're having with, with regard to to power. And, uh, and, and by power, we're also talking about uh, administrative power, economic power, and political power. I think it's also a barometer of the kind of pomp and circumstance that surrounds the Whitney Biennial generally. Full disclosure, I pretty much always hate the biennial. (laughs) So I think people should know that this is the position I'm speaking from. But that said, there was another underlying layer to the whole biennial this year with the piece that came out after the protest has kind of crested. People have decided to pull their work and then backed out once Candace left the board. The other piece to the massive piece to the puzzle for me was John Yao's article on how one actually gets into the Whitney Biennial. Wow, and he right. broke it down statistically with a great deal of background research. And what he found was that 38 out of 68 of the living individual artists that have work in, had work in the Biennial either live or work in the New York City area. 43 out of the 68 live in or near the New York area. 53 out of the 68, not counting those that hail from Puerto Rico, either on the East Coast or on the West Coast. So basically none from Middle America, what John Yao points out, is colloquially known as the flyover states. So the analysis continues from there, and he points out that there are particular pipelines, institutional pipelines into the biennial. Skowhegan, Studio Museum of Harlem, and Recess happen to be the, the three most prominent ones. Given yeah, I, I thought that was so interesting. I just want to point out that these statistics are specific to the 2019 Whitney That's Biennial. Right. That's, That's right. right, and it's good that you do point that out. But it, what it does, what his research does point out, is that although to take as a kind of example, Recess says on its own website that part of its mission is to build a more just and inclusive creative community. The Whitney Biennial 2019 version isn't that inclusive. This is only to say that the sword cuts both ways, right? That as much as we are, we bring to the table these very important polemics about 
the administrative structure of a place that actually privileges a munitions manufacturer. At the same time, the people who are responsible for putting the Whitney Biennial together are showing a certain kind of regional, maybe even aesthetic bias that needs to be confronted if we're going to be honest with ourselves at the end of the day. Well, what you're saying is pretty controversial, Seth, because, you know, the, the, literally everybody has been trumpeting how, how diverse this biennial is. And you're saying it's the opposite. Or at least you're saying, yes, in one way it might be diverse, but in other ways the diversity has not sort of seeped into the DNA of this biennial. Okay, that makes sense. Now, now I'm going to have to ask you, based on what you said, why do you usually hate the biennial? Great question. <laughs> I, I generally loathe the biennial because... And, and I've seen the last, I would say, four or five. And before that, I, yeah, was, I was outside of New York. I lived in London and then in, in L.A. So during those years, I probably saw one or two. Um, I hate it because it always feels like I'm walking into this sort of glossy, high production value showcase for the new talent, the wonder kind who've just been sort of birthed from the like head of Zeus. Like I, I, I constantly walk into the Whitney Biennial thinking... It's just, it's too much. It's too, there's a whiff of star fucker to the right. Whitney Biennial, which I just don't appreciate. I'm not interested in, for those of you who read my, my writing, you know that I come from this place of being really indebted to and I have a great allegiance for meaning. I, I just look for meaning wherever it shows up. The Whitney Biennial feels really light on meaning most of the time to me and feels really heavy on production values. Interesting points. Yeah, I mean, Hakeem, you've been covering a lot of the protests around this. Um, I've been to a few. Jasmine's been to a few. You know, what has been your sense of covering the protests? Have you seen anything that you think people may be interested to know in terms of the people showing up? Is there Was there a buildup? What was amazing to me is that especially talking to visitors to the biennial, like normal people, mm -hmm. patrons, and asking them about what, what they saw during the protest. And the level of disbelief that anything could happen, and the level of complicity with what's going on, hmm. when people said, this is the way it is, right. and there's nothing can be done. That was shocking. And, and the fact is that nobody believed that Candace will go, except maybe for the activists, and I'm not sure all of them. And um, in general, more general terms about this whole crisis, I think, and um, that's just my opinion, that the Whitney was busy rectifying the controversy of the last biennial in 2017. Was it 2017? Right. The Dana, Dana, Dana yeah, Schultz and so infamous on, painting, yep. And skipped over the whole Candace controversy. And that's why many of the critics found the show not radical or political enough. And after nine weeks of protest, it did seem like the Whitney was able to contain this crisis because the critics were pit against the artists, the artists of color specifically. Mm -hmm. The museum uh, had, a, had a work made by forensic architecture in the biennial itself. That but the, when we say the critics and the artists, let's be clear, it's mostly white critics, right? Yeah, the yeah, white, yeah. white critics, yeah. Because that's how it was sometimes played. The yeah. white critics who thought the show is not radical enough and so on. And yeah, and the museum had one work, The Triple Chaser by mm -hmm. forensic architecture that referred to Candace and criticized it. So it felt like it weathered the storm for a while. Yeah. Especially during the months of summer. 
but then we also that. Yeah, I wonder about that. Those, that's a really good point. I mean, one thing I noticed with the protests was sort of there really did feel like there was a building up of a coalition, which I thought was really impressive, you know, because it was like each week, for those who don't know, one week was focused on Puerto Rico, one week was focused on Palestine, you know, so yeah. each of those topics sort of like built their way into the protest. And not that any of them took preference, you know? And I think maybe this was a rare situation where Candor's Safariland manufactured things that were being literally used in all of those events, right? So that, I think, was really interesting. Now, Jasmine, what do you think of the forensic architecture piece of this puzzle? I feel like it's a complicated topic, and part of me wants to applaud and be like, wow, they really used the institution to critique itself. But what do you think? I think that for a lot of people, including Jerry Salt, who, regardless of how you feel about him, admitted that the forensic architecture played a big role in changing his mind about Candor's, mm -hmm. it played an enormous role for a lot of patrons who, like Hakeem said, walked into the museum saying, this is how it is. Not And not just patrons, a lot of critics and a lot of art workers said, this is how it is. Which is the chronic refrain you hear in any kind of movement, just so you know. Yeah. yeah. I think that Forensic Architecture's video gave people a 10-minute insight into just how dangerous Warren Kander's companies can be. It was specifically focused on Sierra bullets and their creation of open-tip match bullets, which are lethal. And I think that for a lot of people, despite the fact that tear gas has killed people, it, it wasn't enough for them. And I think that that was the tipping point that, that some needed. But that's the part that also freaks me out a little bit, the tear gas part. Because you know what I discovered? Tear gas is used mostly in prisons in this country. It's not even in public. The majority of it is used in prisons. So it comes back to this bigger issue. It's also the fact that like, this is part of the prison complex, right? You know, in many ways. So I just, I think people who think that tear gas is not lethal has never had an experience with tear gas because it can very much be lethal. Well, Safariland calls what it does non-lethal solutions, right. which we can see if you simply Google deaths from tear gas that that's not particularly true. One, one thing that I found myself having to explain to people who are really curious about the issue with someone creating tear gas was, well... If it's not directly killing people, what's the issue? And and everyone who I talked to about this wasn't able to answer what the actual use or need for tear gas is. What scenario could possibly justify choking someone with a chemical? Right. And people didn't have an answer because it is an abusive tactic used on publics that have no real means of defending themselves. And we've seen with the Hong Kong protests that people are getting really creative when it comes to fighting back yeah, against and authorities. And yeah. containing the tear gas. It really is. It's really kind of uh, unbelievable how that happened. So now let's talk about a little bit about the art at the Biennial. Now, first, who wants to jump in? I mean, I have so much to say, but, you know, I mean, yeah. Oh, Seth, of course. Okay. Microphone's yours. Okay, so there were a few pieces, despite my earlier uh, <laughs> uh, calumny of the show. I want to point out that there really are, and they, and they pretty much always are in the Whitney Biennial, there always are select pieces that I, I, I find myself resonating with. In this one, there were, there were quite a few, actually. There was uh, the work by, especially, I want to call this out, Alexandra Bell, her, from her um, series No Humans Involved after Sylvia Winter. 
It was a bunch of daily news headlines, rather copies of the daily news newspaper with headlines or sections of the of the paper redacted, fields of black. They have a kind of graphic quality which across the room calls to you. And you get closer and you read them. And, and this is one of those pieces that really takes advantage of what I think is one of the sort of most potent postmodern uh, tactics, which is seriality, which is repetition. It does this thing where it leads you from headline to headline, from newspaper to newspaper, um, showing you how the story around the Central Park Five, who have now subsequently been exonerated, how that story developed and played out in the national consciousness, right? Mm. And you can see how they were demonized, how they were railroaded, how they were, they were spoken of like as if they were subhuman. And per that, the title of Bell's piece comes from an LAPD's, the Los Angeles Police Department's use of the acronym NHI for criminal cases involving black men. So they, we, can, we can see the sort of institutionalized racism come to the surface in this piece, right, in several ways. Brilliant piece, brilliantly executed, powerful, uh, metaphoric, just deeply human. I love that work. I loved Wangechi Mutu's standalone sculptures. It's sort of vintage Mutu, a kind of elaboration on this sort of almost mystical depth of the feminine, right? Can I can I jump in on that one? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I have to say one thing I didn't like about the Mutu sculptures was the way they were installed. It wasn't even the sculptures. Like, I did feel like when we were talking a little earlier about the biennial, like, mm-hmm. it felt very much almost like a MoMA hang. By which I mean, like, the Museum of Modern Art, when they hang things, everything feels like a, a postage stamp on a wall. It's sort of like they feel a little sterilized without context. And I felt like that work. Because, you know, one of those Mutu pieces I actually saw in Cape Town at the uh, at the museum there and the Zeitz Mocha. And I'll tell you, it was just better installed. Like, it was just, there was something about it, seeing it there in this sort of, like, whitened space in this corner. It felt a little sterile to me. So I'm just going to point out some things. Does anybody want to jump in about any of those two that he's mentioned? Um, I actually, I mean, I wholeheartedly agree. I think that the Alexandra Bell works, I think they were incredibly powerful. I live in bed and I've seen a few spots around the neighborhood. Bell's manipulation of the New York Times article about Mike Brown. They're installed like you would see advertisement posters glued to, to the wall. I've seen a few that are chipped away that have probably been there for years. And I think they're incredibly powerful every time I see them. And I think that this iteration was equally as successful. I think when it comes to the Mutu sculptures, not having seen them before, um, I thought that the kinetic quality to them was incredibly mesmerizing. I really enjoyed seeing those. Yeah, fair, very fair. Did you have a favorite work that you wanted to bring up? Um, So I actually probably would have said the Mutu work was my favorite. Ah. I also, I love Simone Lee's work. I think that where they were installed in the gallery felt a little odd to me, but I think that the works themselves are so precise and and i just want to touch them the texture is so incredible they're monumental even yeah. though they're not really you and know they're not I mean? even those weren't even the largest yeah. artworks that i've seen her make but they hold so much power and unfortunately are beside some really mediocre photos but we'll move on um do you have anything hakeem i do i do want to give a shout out to the work of imani isa which was i felt like wasn't discussed enough mm. in the different reviews um, it is called uh, Heritage Studies 2016-2019 and in that work Iman um, 
finds those objects, those ancient Egyptian, Assyrian, Arab um, artifacts, and reimagines them into those um, very modernist, sleek objects that don't really look like the original. You know, in an area where everything or objects like these are being looted, destroyed, lost, and so on, it's an interesting way. It's an interesting, interesting form of artistic research that she does. Mm. I find it refreshing. But I will say one thing about that, though, and maybe you have a thought too, Seth, but I don't think anybody got that. And if you didn't read the wall text, exactly. I mean, I know all those objects. And I was sort of like, okay, they're nice objects, but I mean, are we reaching? Yes, exactly. That's, again, the question of installation. I mean, they, they occupied a large space at the center of the sixth floor. I feel like I would have put Simone Lee's sculptures there, ah. where Imanisa's is, in a more central part of that floor, and, and give more explanation about uh, Imanisa. Although her work was shown before in, at MoMA and at the Sculpture Center, but yes, you do need, uh, they, they do seem a little cryptic at the beginning. So I'm surprised it took me about two minutes to figure out who you were talking about. And I was like, wait, Issa, I wrote about her. I actually wrote, <laughs> uh, no, 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 not for hyperallergic, but actually yeah. it was like three years ago for the Vilcek Prize. The foundation asked me to write uh, artist bios um, up for the prize, for the website or whatever. Nari Ward, Emma Issa, and um, Carlos Mota. She actually wrote on, on her work, and I, when I was at the biennial, I remember looking at her work and thinking, why does this work look so inert to me? Like, I could not tell what, yeah. it, like, it just felt like, sort of like, like, honestly, like, there was like some kind of, like, deluge or some kind yeah. of cataclysm, and these were, like, in a modernist museum, and these were the ones, the works that just happened to, like, wash up and survive. Like, I don't, I don't. <laughs> I, I just didn't get it. Well, I'll tell you one more thing. In the wall text, Iman consciously avoids naming the museums from which these objects were mm. taken or, mm. or to which they were found. Mm. And that's because she, wants, she doesn't want, want her work to look like institutional critique. That's not her thing, okay. which is a Got essay it. anyway. Well, you know, it's like, I think this comes back to like what I was saying earlier. Like, I think it was somehow the way they hung it. Like even Eric Mack, whose work I like a lot, I didn't think his work looked good in that space at all. I just felt like it looked unfinished. It looked kind of strange, but it didn't look like it sort of consolidated. And I felt the same way about a number of other artists, even like, you know, people like John Edmonds, who I like really liked his photographs, but they were like hung in a hallway. I mean, it was kind of this weird space that I thought these needed more attention and they weren't being given. So, I mean, I know there are all these peculiarities, but then... I, I don't know. I just felt like it was a little bit of a mess that way in ter terms of the install. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that um, that generally the show read to me as messy, although, again, I find most of the biennials messy. Um, I want to shout out Jeanette Munt for the paintings that, well, particular one that stuck in my mind was the one of Simone Biles, born athlete American. What Munt does with her technique is she creates these kind of almost stutter step paintings where they look like they might have been made by a camera with a very, very fast shutter speed with lots of images sort of like layered against each other, um, almost in a sort of like a, in a way that reminds me of Moybridge. Really wonderful painting, really, really kinetic and really engaging. I also want to shout out uh, Geneva Ellis's painting, Uh Oh, Look Who Got Wet. Yes. Kind of yes. interesting painting. Um, very, very like... 
um, surprising palette, like neon almost colors. It took me forever to notice the other figure lying on the ground and not the figure crossing the river with the whatever creature on its chest. It's the kind of painting that actually shows up in your consciousness later, mm. like when you had a chance yeah. to think about it, which I love. Yeah, I found what Hakim said about underrated works in the biennial, I felt like that was not paid nearly enough attention to by critics. I thought that it was, I thought that it was a really fascinating painting. I completely agree about the palette being striking and unusual, and I think that it's size. I think everything about that painting was surprising to me, especially in the context of the room where it was. Mm -hmm. And I think that that painting deserved a lot more attention. Absolutely. I will say one artist I thought was really interesting, and this is to tie together some of the protests and other stuff we were talking about, Eddie Arroyo's paintings, who, I don't know if you saw them, the small paintings, mostly of Little Haiti in Miami. And then he was actually at one of the protests I was covering and uh, with the Chinatown Art Brigade. And then he turned the protest into paintings. And I realized this was, I guess I wasn't so conscious of what his process was. And I thought that was such an interesting way of doing that and how he's using his activism and his own life as the content for these like little paintings that he sort of creates of these places that are disappearing, which I thought was a, I mean, I just thought that was a really great sort of like thing to discover. Do we want to talk about works we don't like? Well, I, I, <laughs> I just want to shout out one more, which is the work I, I, I was saving for the end that I really, really appreciated, may, maybe more than any of the other works in the entire biennial, which is Daniel Lind Ramos. Mm. I thought his work, his sculptural work was just brilliant. It's particularly Maria Maria, which is given a place right. of prominence. Yep. It definitely gives you that sort of... Um, Pieta kind of feel that there's something sort of religious and 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 I suppose at the same time spiritual about it. It's a kind of pian to Mother Mary, but it's done with coconuts and it's just like it sounds funny if you say it out loud, <laughs> but in the presence of the work, you feel sort of that sense of reverence and I love that. It's like you can make the divine from these mundane materials and that that piece reminds me of that truth. And it did have a, like an air of devotion, even if it wasn't necessarily spiritual. It definitely like felt like an object that one does out of love. Absolutely, you know. Yeah. So I don't. I don't want to be unkind. I have all all the respect in the world to um, Nicole for Nicole Eisenman. But when she pulled out of the show, I thought maybe that terrace is gonna look, you know, much nicer now. <laughs> Oh, ouch, ouch. Well, I'll tell you. High five, high five. I'm totally with you. I hated that piece. Really? I didn't hate it. I I actually kind of liked the piece, the one outside. I actually didn't. I didn't see it. Oh, okay. Um, for myself, the day that the day that I went, it was raining outside, oh, so I never got to see it for myself. It. But I'm surprised to hear that only because that was one of the only pieces across most published criticisms of the biennial that was universally lauded. Yeah, well, I mean, I do think there's something about Eisenman work and any work that has kind of more narrative content that critics like. I do think that that's a thing. You know what I mean? Because it's easy to write about. It's sort of literary in that way. There's sort of a poetics to it. And Eisenman is a star. She's a legit yeah, she art star. Yeah, and yeah. she's and she's she's no, she's pretty good. Anyway, that's my my my, my one I really hated was Josh Klein. I thought those little boxes, I mean, 
Did you even see them? I mean, remind us well. They were like little boxes with almost like waterfalls on on top of images of like a Twitter uh, image, a White House. I was like, "What the hell? These are terrible." I mean, I could get if they were in the back room of a gallery show because you have to sell small objects. I was like, "Why are these?" And they were given such prominence. And I thought those were, I mean, those were very mediocre in my opinion, you know. And then one other artist I want to mention, you know, I don't mind Martin Sims. I didn't think this was her best piece. I thought it was given a lot of space. I thought it was like, all right. It was the one where it's, it was called people who aren't friends or lovers or exes. And there were a lot of digital screens and sort of super graphics on the wall. And, and I just felt like it was, it was really dry. And I think Martin Sims at her best is like sort of intellectually stimulating, but then, you know, at her weakest moments feels like a lot of noise to me. So. A lot of noise with like some grad school education propping it up. Though I will say, to be positive, Nicholas Galanin, we didn't talk about his piece, White Noise American Prayer Rug from 2018. Mm -hmm. I personally think that was a really strong work, only because he really sort of condensed a lot of things into an object Mm -hmm. like that. And I thought it was kind of unexpected. I don't know how others feel. But I thought the whole, you know, the whole idea of the prayer rug, this idea of, you know, this kind of fundamentalism, you know, this all that kind of thing with the white noise is sort of like you could see how he sort of framed it in these sort of stereotypes, American stereotypes. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was just brilliantly done because I think he was playing with some of those stereotypes personally. So anybody have any other thoughts that they want to share on the Whitney Biennial this year? I mean, there are a lot of other artists we can talk about, of course. I mean, uh, Brandon Fernandez, yeah. eh. um, Christine Sun Kim. I thought those drawings were interesting, the deaf drawings. Yeah, yeah. Those were, were interesting drawings. Yeah, yeah. I love them, and they, they were imbued with so much humor. Yeah, I thought so, too. Yeah, they were great. And then, um, let's see, is there any other artists? Uh, we, we talked about Daniel Lind Ramos. Who was the indigenous woman who did the piece where she's playing the violin and it's in film form and there's a and there's a musical soundtrack is, oh is this not ringing a bell for anybody no oh no it's about. a beautiful it's actually one of the most beautiful pieces in the show like lyrical you can hear the music from um it's actually quite close to daniel lynn ramos's work it's like on an adjacent wall i want to say and yeah i don't remember her name but i was super impressed by the work Okay, so does anyone have any closing thoughts? Now, what is your takeaway from the Whitney controversy? I mean, I'll start with mine. I think, you know, it really made me proud to be part of a community that could do something like this and really take itself to task and really explore it. I mean, I hope this is not a Band-Aid measure. I hope this isn't just sort of a temporary thing. But, you know, I was impressed. I mean, I did notice, though, Jane Panetta, one of the curators that was not an employee, did not sign the letter and just got hired a few months ago from the Whitney. So uh, there's definitely these politics of, like, activism within institutions. But I still thought, you know, especially the fact that that letter was signed mostly by junior staff members showed me that a new generation is willing to take on these issues and put themselves on the line when they need to. And I I have to say that really gave me a lot of hope. And it made me also appreciate why the biennial exists in some ways, because, you know, we do need lightning rods sometimes to have those conversations, even when they are in museums. And I do think that if the Whitney was on the Upper East Side, this would not have been the same. 
I do think them moving down to the uh, meatpacking district and the way the architecture is open to the community and just the fact that there's like foot traffic that aren't just a bunch of stodgy rich people. You know, I do think that that strategic decision was, in my opinion, very, you know, great. Though I am still peeved that Adam Weinberg will not talk to us and has not given us any official statements, which I think shows me that, you know, I I, I do question his leadership as a result of that, because I do think if somebody's covering a story like this, you have a responsibility. If you get public money and if you're open to a public supposedly, then you should respond to public questions. Yeah. I mean, he, he politely uh, rejected our request for interview. But for me, this is just a reminder that change is possible. Yeah. So don't be cynical. I suppose that one the lesson that I take away from this is there's a, a poster that I've seen around. It's, it's, it's older now, um, but it refers to the civil rights movement. And it simply says, sort of shows an iconic image from that movement, and it, this, it, the tagline reads, much has changed, much has not. I do think that the Whitney Biennial bringing about this shift, the shift in their board makeup is also representative of this larger shift in the culture, which is about holding people accountable. It is fundamentally incompatible with them mission of a public museum to have someone on their board who makes profit off of human misery. That's the point that I made in a piece that I wrote about Simone Lee's Instagram post. Um, and Do you want to talk about that just a little? I know we don't have, we, we, we want to, we're wrapping up a little, but I think it's important that you bring that up because that was definitely another sort of lightning rod point in this biennial that got a lot of people talking. Right. Well, I, I say much has changed, much has not, because I think John Yao's piece uh, recognizes that or demonstrates that while sometimes our politics are principled and they bring about real positive change, at the same time that we have to, we have to look at how deep those politics go. Does the Whitney Biennial really have skin in the game when it comes to representing artists outside of these major pipelines that we've talked about um, on the podcast? and outside of these regional centers, New York and L.A. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the question that I, I want to pose to the institution. Can you expand your vision to be truly diverse, to be truly inclusive? And I do want to say, like, with regards to the piece that I wrote, that that sort of brings into focus that issue of inclusivity and diversity of opinion, because although I got a great deal of love, I did, I got a great deal of love from critics, for that piece, I also got some hatred from artists of color and even one critic of color who called my piece insane on Twitter. I think that what that reminds me of is that in actually taking a critical stance, one is actually taking a, a bit of a risk because not everyone who looks like you or claims the mantle of diversity or inclusivity or claims those as like convictions that they hold actually has that play out in their intellectual lives. That's the lesson for me. I think for me, walking away from the biennial, I do feel incredibly hopeful having seen how many Whitney staffers were willing to organize behind this cause in spite of the fact that we're working in an industry where trying to make changes often puts you at a great risk. I also 
would say that my main takeaway is that this biennial created a lot of conversations about intellectual authority when it comes to critical race theory. I think it's a moment where we have to make a lot of decisions about who's qualified to be having conversations about artwork related to race and gender and and what it means when certain critics see an artwork that is, let's say, an abstract expressionist artwork and feeling as though they need to have a degree under their belt to be able to analyze it and to be able to speak about it, but an artwork by a younger Black artist about race relations, most critics feel qualified to speak about it, regardless of their background, regardless of their relationship with race. I think that it's a really interesting conversation for us to have, and I'm not saying that you have to be of a certain community to write about that community, but I think that everyone does need to be more conscious about am I qualified to write about this? Why do I feel qualified to write about this? I also think that it's a good lesson for us, regardless of how people feel about the artwork in the biennial. About 50% of the artists were artists of color. One of the curators was a black woman. I think it's incredibly important for us to look at this year and to not do what happened in with the 1993 biennial, where there was a big stir about race. There was a high amount of artists, higher than normal amount of artists of color showing, and then years later, back to a majority white roster. I think that we really need to look at why that happens and and what are the outside political motivations that are putting pressure on the museum to have a more diverse show, and how can we protect the artists of color who have now been labeled as emerging stars and get rid of that glossy sheen and figure out how we can actually support artists of color and disabled artists and women artists outside of this one show that's only up for a few months. That is a great point. Excellent point. So we can can end there. But, you know, I do think if I can sort of answer a little bit just the one part of what you said is I think it's by engaging with the work constantly and writing about it critically and not giving things a pass just because we feel like we need to and we're really uncomfortable putting ourselves in a place to be scrutinized and i do think this was one of the first biennials i ever saw where critics were also scrutinized yeah which i thought was excellent it was about friggin time i have no idea why critics think that their work should not be scrutinized in the same way that anybody else in a creative profession is so i do think that that to me, showed there was some consciousness about that. So I think that's great. Well, thank you, Jasmine. Thank you, Hakeem. Thank you, Seth. This has been another episode of Art Movements. A special thanks to Wander Raven, who provided the music to this week's episode. The song is titled Here Into the Darkness, and you can hear more at wanderraven.com. I'm Hrag Bartanyan, the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening, and enjoy your week. 